Welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by the TAC, The Road Belongs to Us All, a very important message that Cadell summarizes very well at the back back end of this podcast. He talks about that at the end of the day, it all comes down to respect. It all comes down to respecting other road users to create a safe environment on the road. This episode, I'm very excited to have the 2011 Tour de France winner, Cadell Evans, joined Max Gorn, the Melbourne Football Club captain, to talk about the Tour de France that's been, but also reflect on Cadell's 2011 Tour de France. And Max has a few uh, football questions as well, as well around how Cadell built that team environment in 2011 to take home the yellow jersey to Australia. A big thank you to our presenting partner, the TAC, and also to MAP Apparel, our favorite kit brand. They've actually launched a, something slightly different today. They've launched a coffee blend with Proud Mary, a local roasteria here in Melbourne. If you want to check out their coffee, which I was lucky enough to taste at the MAP shop ride on Saturday, you can head to Proud Mary's website or go to their MAP's store in North Melbourne to check out their Proud Mary MAP coffee collaboration. I hope you enjoy this episode and uh, can take in all the insights that both Cadell and Max bring to the table. Well, welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by the TAC, The Road Belongs to Us All. My name is Alex Clemens and I'm very excited today to be joined by Melbourne Football Club captain Max Gorn. Welcome, Max. Thanks, Alex. And the uh, 2011 Tour de France winner, Cadell Evans. Welcome, Cadell. Oh, thanks for having me. And um, oh, yeah, Max and Alex, no, no, pleasure to speak with you. And then sort of, <clears throat> I, I suppose we're an ex-pro, <clears throat> uh, nearly made it to pros and someone well into their realm and in the peak of their career, but in a completely different sport. It's, uh, uh, I, think, I, think, I think we have, uh, uh, is that a balanced perspective or just a really skewed <laughs> No, it's a good balance. I was going to introduce him as the 2010 La Flesh Wallone winner, Alex. Well, there's there's about there's about four or five others introductions that we could have could have run with. Cadell, do you support an AFL team? Um, so I I grew up in New South Wales when it was um, VFL. <clears throat> when I moved to Melbourne and we had high school PE or whatever, oh, we're playing footy, and I'm like, like rugby, right? No, and then I've looked at the goalpost and I'm like, what the hell? There we go. What, the, what do you do here? This was my introduction to this is in like, uh, hang on, 1988, 1989, year seven PE. And um, that sort of put me off. That <laughs> put me off what was then B or Aussie rules. I say let's speak as Aussie rules. That put me off Aussie rules for a while, to be honest. Also, being an endurance sport, and I'm, I'm sorry, is the Steve Prefontaine sort of story? <laughs> High school sports didn't suit me, um, uh, um, and so so it sort of put me off it for a while. But I, I was a bit of an admirer of um, St Kilda and Tony Lockett, actually. And I don't know, is does he ride now? He I, does. He's actually lost a lot of weight and is down to um, almost a climber type weight. Really, climber. really. Just funnily enough, and I just by chance, and I started following that. And then a few years later, I had a knee injury actually. And Max, you know well about this ACLs and things. Yep. And the um, Geelong football, I was moving there, I moved down to Bowen Heads, and and I'd um, I had a knee injury. And the Geelong football club reached out to me and said, Oh, look, we've got a bit, we can help you if you want. Come in and see us if you need some help. And I'm, 
Oh, no one's going to know about ACLs more than, a, more than an AFL club. And, and so I got to know them. And I got to know, um, above all, um, Cameron Ling and Tom Harley, most of all. Tom, Tom was probably the one, first guy I got to know a bit. Um, but on the inside of the team and the training, the strategy and the specificity that they had, to just little tiny what for me would just seem like details. And um, that really, really completely changed my mindset. And it just amazed me, um, of course, the professionalism, the um, specific amount of training they did for like the free um, free when you're floating in the air, which is yeah. something in cycling we don't we try not to do any training or any practice for, because <laughs> they had a um, they had a, a gymnast who used to come in and train them for like how to fly through the air, so to speak. Just little things like that it just amazed me. And then, but what really what really amazed me, what I think cycling could really take from AFL and a lot of other team sports is the unity and the the team aspect but knowing every other of your teammates so so well because in cycling we don't, we don't actually get a chance to do that because we only come together as a team when we race now we race a lot but <clears throat> you also come together under pressure you don't have time to drill and practice and if you have a chance to win the tour you're going to have a team that's dedicated to it well if you have a chance to win the tour you hope you've got a team that's dedicated to it so maybe you'll have one or two days team time trial camp you have a training camp at the start of the year where you're all together, but it's also media, photos, bits and pieces. I've often gone to a training camp at the start of the year and the next time I saw a teammate was either at the tour or at the team meeting at the end of the year because yep. you do it race all season, you don't see a, a couple of your teammates. And so so that, that was, um, sorry to answer your question, I became a bit of a Geelong guy, thanks because of the help that they gave to me, And um, but I became a, a real... Um, I had a whole change of perspective in the whole professionalism and athleticism of, of AFL footballers. Geelong, Geelong Melbourne's a chance for a grand final this year, Cadell. Yeah, they are. I've, yeah. I've been so out of it. I haven't been back since my, since the 20... I, the last time I was in Australia, I was on the plane to leave from the 2020 edition of, of my race. Um, so I'm so out of the loop. You know, well, you'll have to up-to-date me, up to date me after, the, after the show. Yeah. All you need to know, Cadell, is the D's led by Max Gorn are on fire. Great point, Alex. <laughs> Thank you. You wouldn't believe how far I'm out of the loop on those things. I, <laughs> I probably sub- should subscribe to some um, Victorian newspapers. Actually, I, I, so I read I read the Guardian for my uh, for my Australian news. <laughs> the the team element that you mentioned before, Cadell, is something that I think. Um, I, I find really interesting and something that Campbell also experienced as well. We, me, uh, Campbell and myself were lucky enough to be in that team environment of the AAS where you had six, six athletes and four support staff. You work with them for the entire year. You become best mates or at least very, very good mates with the majority yeah. of the team. And I think <laughs> like that really, that really translates into something um, special when you're actually winning races and then Campbell, I, I, I never went pro. Campbell went pro into the pro ranks, and like he talked about, he's got teammates that he hardly even knows. He sees them at train, team camp at the end of the year, and that that could be it. Looking at 2011, what shaped that team that made it special? That made made that team come together. Well, maybe it's what I learned from AFL that, um, <laughs> that that helped shape that. No, mostly I think we were um, in terms of on the road. Our strength was our was in our unity. Not so much we weren't great in the mountains and so on. But we um, <clears throat> we had a core team going into the tour. And well, just going back from 2011, 2010, we had the yellow jersey in the tour. 
idiot here broke, uh, had a stupid crash. I think I was was taken out from behind or something. Oh, something happened. I fell on my elbow. I didn't know it, but I, I broke my elbow. I didn't know. I got back on my bike and riding to the finish, and um, I'd taken uh, two more than two minutes on Contador on this cobbled stage the previous day. And I rode into the yellow jersey. The next day I went and had an X-ray, and oh, you've got a broken arm. <laughs> I've got the yellow jersey to France. I'm not going to stop, am I? We're, we were in a great position to win the Tour de France in 2010. So that was sort of a bit of a basis behind it. But because we didn't win it, we weren't favourites and things. But 2011, we started. We started the season. We were at the training camp, doing our training, doing our bits and pieces. I think there was a quiet confidence amongst ourselves. And when you have someone like George Hinkup, he's ridden, I think, alongside it with 10 Tour de France winners. Like he's been on 10 Tour de France winning teams. Um, when he's confident... Everyone's confident. It's like he knows a lot more about this than I do. So no matter who you are in the team, if he's confident and happy, no one's got any reason not to be. So that was sort of the start of it. And then we went to the first races of the year. We went to Toronto, Attico, and we won. We went to um, to Romandy, and we won. Uh, I went to Catalonia, and we didn't win. Anyway, then we went to um, Dauphiné Libre, and um, oh, I, was, I was struggling with allergies that year, I don't remember, but. You know, it was coming together and there was a few things <clears throat> went wrong and it was one one time I remember splitting the crosswind or whatever. But anyway, nearly every time we came together, we were winning. And then we went to the tour and um, things just started going well. But we just were slowly, not quite, we, we had a real quiet confidence about it, uh, about us. And it wasn't like we're coming here to win the tour. We're just, we're just here. We're just to do a job. We know we all want to do our best. And everyone, I think, we sort of didn't need to speak too much about ourselves because by then we'd been together and people knew me. I knew the other guys. I was sort of looking out for their back. They were looking out for me. And everyone knew exactly what they had to do. And what what gave me the um, uh, probably the final going into the tour was um, – I was going off to do my altitude training camps and do my course reconnaissance and all these things. And of course, we organised the uh, team time trial training and so on. Everyone's, yep, I'm going to be there. And um, But then everyone went off and did their own altitude camp. A couple of the guys went off together with their families. I think Quintiato uh, took his uh, partner and George and his wife went up to Livigno and so they could have their families and things. And I was off in um, oh, some mountaintop place in Switzerland that I used to go to. And But everyone sort of went off and did their own training camp and no one was asked to, but it was sort of like I got the feeling it's like no one wants to fall short here. But because we had this kind of, yeah, it was, it was just a, a what I feel was a really healthy, strong way to build confidence because I, I, as a team leader, I never wanted to put pressure and expectations on people because I didn't like having pressure and expectations on myself. But if you can help people along the way and help them to get the best out of themselves, they're going to help you. They're going to want to help you back and then you create a nice you look out for me, I look out for you, and we all look out for each other's back. And if everyone in the team's doing that for each other, all of a sudden you've got this great union, I, I suppose. And, um, yeah, that's it started there. Do you, have a, do you have a say as a GC rider, Cadell, on which teammates you take to the tour? Because looking yeah, most... at that 2011 tour team in particular, and albeit that mighty last stage where you had to chase the selects yourself, there probably wasn't a really good mountain domestique for you in that team. So is that your choice or is that, or is that BMC? 
It's uh, my, my choice. On one thing is my position in BMC, especially in the first years, not so much in the last few years, but I um, my opinion counted a lot in, of course, you have uh, rider selection for the tour, but you've only got your riders on your team to choose from. So you've got to be looking out for riders to get for one or two years' time to get to, to recruit onto the team, which is easier said than done. And that's where the difficulty in cycling, having a good mountain domestique is, most of the guys who were good enough to be there in the final in the mountains are riding for GC themselves. Yeah. So just to find a good climber who's going to commit to you is already difficult. And that's where um, Brailsford's done such a great job at Ineos having such great riders, but having such great riders commit to the cause of the team rather than ride for themselves. Um, and certainly uh, we had our, our best climbers in the team, but there, we didn't have anyone in the team who could like climb with the, the when there's only 10 guys left at the tour. So um, sort of that's, that's the way it went. Um, I think um, that day where I had to chase um, back to the group on um, the day we had to, I had to stop and change my bike, come to think of it, like the guy who I bridged to get to the back of the group that was in front was Sam Sanchez. A year, two years later, he was my teammate. But then, of course, he, he wasn't at the level that he was then either. But to get those riders, it's actually um, that's a that's a really difficult task. To have a have a guy who can win the tour is one thing. To have a guy who can be there who's nearly good enough to win the tour, but will commit to the cause of someone else, that's done something very difficult yeah. and expensive. Yeah. <laughs> Max, do you have a do you have a George Hincapi at Melbourne right now? The exciting, uh, confident. It was Jordan Lewis. Um, the guy who's been there and done that uh, was our Jordan Lewis, who's recently retired. But we're all quite young. Um, it's almost me at the moment, um, and I've only played in two or three finals, so it's a, it's uh, it's astonishing that that could almost be me. Jake Jake Lever's played in the grand final. He um, he has a fair bit of experience in that in that era as well. But um, every time I look back at that 2011 team, Cadell, I'm a, I'm amazed at um, most likely the team unity was the part that got you guys over the line rather than all nine riders being absolute stars in itself. So it's quite different to the Ineos or the Jumbo Visma today. It's almost like Pogacar last year um, was sort of out on his own a, a little bit and didn't really have a lead domestique to get him over, over the line. So it then leads me to that next question. Do you reckon Pog needs a good team to come up against Jumbo and Ineos? Yeah, I think, um, no, you've observed it well where, like I was watching Pog um, ride the tour last year. I was like, oh, this is, um, well, funnily, the manager there was Alan Piper, who later became a BMC man, was a BMC manager after my period at BMC. Now looks after looks after the Pog. But um, I looked down and I was like, mm, that's just kind of what we did, hang there to the wait, hang close and go in the last time trial and make the time. I didn't expect Pog to be able to make that kind of no one gap uh, to 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 Pog. I, I didn't expect Pog to make that gap to Rog, but anyway, that's another discussion. But um, certainly, I think I think for Pogacar, Pog, as you <laughs> refer to him, I think that's a great name for him because <laughs> his first and last name kind of hard to pronounce. Hard to get your mouth around, aren't they? Um, I think he's going to find it a bit different this year, whereas because he's going to be the guy that's looked at when you've got the number one on your back, the whole peloton looks at you differently. 
And um, they've had some recruitment since say, Mark Hershey, who was involved in the crash on the first day. Um, that's uh, going to be a real loss for him because that's a guy who can be there at least on the flats and some of the middle mountains. When he gets into the, the big mountains, I think that's where we're going to see Ineos really turn, turn things around, which is um, because the, the first two days haven't gone quite as, they, as well as they wanted, wanted to, I, I'm, I'm assuming. What, what was your take on the carnage of the first day, Cadell? And also, can you talk us through, can you try and articulate what I imagine is one of the most stressful scenarios in sport, the first day of a Tour de France in a group of riders riding through Brittany, one of the tightest, toughest terrains to conquer? Yeah, yeah, the roads are very narrow there. That's that's the main thing. There's a lot of, um, well, I suppose, Brittany is not so bad because there's not much guttering there. So if you, if you go off the road, you're in the dirt and in the grass, which isn't so bad because if you're in the gutter and lampposts and things they, they, they hurt <laughs> they end your season but um the first week of the tour it's um yeah it's it's very nervous but um oh where do i start with this the um to ride the first week of the tour is you just got to get through it that's the first thing you've got to get through it and if there's going to be a split or a big thing where you just hope you're in front where you're going to get time and your teammates, you're not wishing bad on, oh, sorry, teammates, on your competitors. You know, of course, wishing bad luck or misfortune to your competitors, but that's just, that's just the first week. And going back to the um, team on paper that we had in 2011, we didn't have a team in the mountains, but I was so cruisy and easy just getting through all that stuff on the flat because I had Quinciata, Bugart, then on my wheel I had Hincapi, then behind him I had Amel Monard and Steve Morabito in case George failed or something, all just ready to go. And so I had Quincy and Bugart getting getting me through. I normally I normally had one in front of me if need um, and the rest behind me because I was one thing as a team leader, I was trying to always try to be as economic with my team as possible as I'm trying to be as economic with my own legs because in case something goes wrong and you've got to get everyone in the front, you want them fresh and ready. But anyway, going through all that flat stuff, I was had a fantastic team. So I just cruised through all that. So when I got to the climb and it had to be me, I was ready to go. And that was where having a, a George Hincapie, I could actually change the way I raced my, um, my tour. I was like, I can actually just relax because I have full faith and confidence that he's going to look out for me. And he's going to deliver me at the bottom of the Mudihui or that left corner where I know I've got to be and follow from there. I'm just going to follow Contador. I'm just going to follow. We know who's going to attack and I'm just going to follow them. And then I've just got to be able to come around them. And um, and that was, for me, that though these became a bit my speciality was these stages in the first week. Going to what it's actually like in the first week, since I've stopped racing even my teammates and so on who continued racing and some have stopped and said there, there seems to be, have become less and less respect within the peloton. There's more pushing and shoving and spitting on the other guys, maybe with the COVID thing, the spitting things hope, stopped, I hope, throwing bottles in, in the middle of the peloton and things like that. And the feed zone's still a mess, people passing on the ride in the feed zone. When I was a stagiaire, I remember getting yelled at in my first races in Italy by um, Johan Museo and um, Mario Cipollini, I think, for passing on the right in a feed zone. I was like, <laughs> Ah, and this is back in like 1999. Um, I never passed on the right in the feed zone for the rest of my life. <clears throat> but then you come in as, a, as an established rider with 15 grand tours in your legs or something and some neo pros chopping under you, nearly breaking your arm as you're taking a, a feedback from your swan. You're like, what the hell? And you're not allowed to yell at them because you get fined. Um, hey, buddy. And, and then um, 
so so there's that aspect of it. But then what I my my thing that's a little bit the um, unknown and un, talked about point I suppose in the nervousness of the first week. There's all this excitement about the tour. There's from the crowd, from the media, and the media attention. But there's also this. Um, everyone knows it's going to be nervous. Everyone knows it's, there's going to be crashes. So people get nervous, and that makes people, people crash. So people get even more nervous. So you're creating this whole it, its own circle of danger. So it's really. Um, can you please put my headphones back together? This is Aiden, um, and so um, that 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 creates its own. You know, when you're riding a bike and you're tense, uh, if it rains, people are all nervous because they know it's like crashes, but they're tense, you don't control the bike as well. And that just creates crashes. So people become more nervous, which creates more crashes, which uh, it just goes on and on and on. And, um, and then the, the, we see more teams taking the opportunities in crosswinds and so on, which is great to watch. But Is, it, is a stage like the last two nights almost more stressful and more hard for a GC rider than like a Tourmalet day? Would you rather yeah. a Tourmalet day than one of the ones last last night? <laughs> At least on the Tourmalet or the Glivier, if you haven't got the legs, you're not going to do it. It's going to be your on your own fault. Yep. You can do everything right that you're doing there, but the, the, the two crashes on the first day, they happened right at the front. Tony Martin hit that... <laughs> Was that some lady was had a sign, yeah. hello, grandma and grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like second on the second row at the front of the peloton. It's like, where better place can you be? Where, where it's hopefully going to be. So how safe or more professional a thing can you do? Um, they, they happen right at the front. So there's nothing you can do. It's like 80 guys crashing. You know, you, it doesn't matter how good a bike handling are. If someone's in you know, a bike's hitting you on the head or something, <laughs> you, there's nothing that you can do. So, so those ones are just are just crazy. What also happens is after sort of a week, people get tired. People get too tired to get um, to to be nervous because they just start getting tired. But then what also I see what happens in the Grand Tour at about day. 10 to 12 is your people start to get mentally really fatigued. So they start having sort of stupid crashes just for lapsing concentration. They're, oh, I'm a bit tired now. They run to a traffic island or something. And so you see a few crashes there in the middle of the week and then the third week everyone's just a zombie and they get on with it. And plus stage, stage, stage one, it seemed like all 20 teams wanted their trains. It seemed like everyone had a thought they had the winner in their, in their team. Yeah, there's what 160 in the peloton now, and there's um everyone wants to be all, all 160 want to be from 10th to 20th position in the peloton. Yeah, <laughs> that's not going to work, is it? it, it that um that kind of hierarchy that you talked about before, Cadell, not a hierarchy, but the level of respect that came from these kind of elder statesmen that had the opportunity, had the wins, had the that that's just been thrown out the door. It seems like on every level now, guys enter their pro careers and they're it's like, all right, you're the leader for this race. But as you said, it's kind of got a little bit of an, a negative element too because you don't have the respect that flows up up the ladder. Yep, I, I agree. There's yeah, less and less respect. And and the thing was like um, like because I, I raced with Cipollini in the early parts of my career and you know, I didn't like the peloton because he's yelling at you for this and that and because he wants to get his photo taken or whatever and things like this. But he created a certain amount of respect amongst the riders and um, he was a bit of a he was a bit of a peloton captain. And love him or loathe him, he. Um, but this sort of yeah, it created a bit of yeah, a bit of a hierarchy, a bit of respect, and um, and that and that's sort of become a bit lost now, like you said. And 
I, I think what, as, as a writer, after a few years, you're sort of like, um, what you become to realise is just try and treat right as well because you never know next year who's going to be your teammate who's going to be your roommate maybe you're going to be riding for that guy who's spitting on you or vice versa maybe that guy who's spitting on you is going to be begging you for a contract next year um because me who was involved in team selection and sort of like what goes around comes around it seems like the new ones the sport don't seem to understand this and, and don't seem to get this and um and as a GC leader, you're having a bad day, you've got the jersey or something, but maybe they're going to have a jersey in another race you're at and you're having a good day and they're having a bad day or whatever, a little favour, a little helping helping someone out or being a bit kind on them, being the gentlemanly racer. They sort of don't, don't, don't seem to realise this. I don't want to be the old guy in the peloton saying the young don't understand, but a certain level of respect and experience for those who've been there and done it before, I think we have to have in life. Max, um, stage two last night, we saw a masterclass from one of the vans. Yes. Did you uh, did you know what he was doing when he went on the first climb, the first time up the murder? Hui? He <laughs> went on the attack, and it, it looked a little, it just looked a little bit off, and on a few points. Well, I was I was listening to Kino in the call, and when it when he only got sort of that seven second gap and held it that wasn't the Vanderpoel that I've been watching this last two seasons and Kino said maybe it's because he's at the tour and it's the first time he's at a tour and it's a different league the tour and I was sitting there going no I still think the one day classics are hard enough and um, he's ready to go and he just held that seven second gap and in my head I'm like is he going for king of the mountain points and then dropping back into the group I didn't realise there was bonus seconds it's absolute mastermind and so much confidence how much confidence can you have to think I'm going to attack on both times up the climb Often, I, that's amazing and it turns out he didn't need the bonus seconds because he managed to drop Philippe on the line anyway but um, I, it, it meant so much for him to get yellow on that stage he would have been disappointed with stage one and I, would, I, I tuned in for the tour to see Vanderpoel this year, and I'm glad I got to see what I saw stage last 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 night. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Cadell, um, you've, you've won up that climb. So we're talking about 2011, you won the Tour de France, but you also won stage four up that climb. What, what, do, you need to, what do you need to know about that climb? And, and were you looking at it, analysing what you, you've experienced in your racing career as well last night? Did you go if up could, twice a, and, and attack it in the first time as well? Like, 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 like <laughs> well exactly, Max. I wanted to go to your answer first because <laughs> Max is – I've ridden nine Tour de France's. <laughs> Max is a much better – Max is a more experienced Tour de France Grand Tour watcher than I am. <laughs> I, I was exactly the same as you. I'm like, what? Funnily enough, I was doing some TV stuff during the race and I had my 2011 tour book here. So I've got it up here on the bookshelf here. Yeah. And so I was looking through it because I think we only went up at once. Let me check. I've got the book here. I probably could have looked up on the internet earlier, but I'm old school with the book. But I don't have the book for this year. And so I'm like, I was exactly the same, Max. What's he doing? He's not just testing his legs at 20K to go. And, and then, oh, he had the bonus seconds. Ah, oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, and then, yeah, to have that have that confidence, and he sort of he rides with this air of confidence as well. It's a bit, I don't know, it's sort of a bit of a little area between that grey line of of um, of of self confidence and overconfidence. But uh, he sort of rides with that air about him. It's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? But then, um, of course, it all came together. Like you said, Alaphilippe didn't 
make the show wasn't the other Philippa of yesterday didn't didn't get a time bonus so we didn't need it but in the end be sure to do it and then what I really liked about uh, the, the both the two stages it's so nice to see these um yesterday uh, the first day one apart from the crashes and so on, Alaphilippe coming, he lost his father a year before, he's become a dad just recently to go and win that stage and made the gesture towards his uh, new son, son daughter. Uh, the, his, the fact that he's just become a, a father and then um, that um, the Van, <clears throat> Van der Poel could make this gesture towards his grandfather whom he lost uh, a year ago, is that correct? Um who'd never wore the yellow jersey himself. So it's, um, it was so oh, so nice to see these emotions outside of sport. And that's, um, I think that's part of also why we have, sport can be so special in society today because it's sometimes driven by, um, by, by emotions and other things beyond the, beyond the, <clears throat> the normal in sport. Um, the Moody Britain. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, if 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 I don't want to I don't want to go on too long about it. It's um it's very short. Uh, you get there, it's 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 like a wall in the sense it's a flat running and boof it goes goes up. I thought um the climb yesterday was uh, being longer, nearly as steep at the start. I um Moody Britain the two, but in two thousand eleven. I just remember going through the one k to go sign and. Hushov was there in the group in front of me. And I'm like, mm, well, should I bother sprinting in this? And the next thing, at, at 500 metres to go, we were, I think we were 10 or 12 left in the group. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm in for the chance here. <laughs> you, think, you think it's going to be a bunch sprint. Next thing you know, there's only climbers left. It's because um, it, it's, it's really um, puts, the, puts the sprinters on the limit. Um, I made two picks on, uh, on the commentary I was involved with yesterday and um, – one was um, Michael Matthews, because how good he went up the first day on a longer climb against climbers. For him being the the sprinter he is, I thought, well, if he can do that on the on the longer climb, he can do better on the Moody Hui. I saw Moody Moody Britain, and then um, and I also picked Garrett Thomas, who lost uh, ten or twenty seconds yesterday, which um, wasn't isn't in your sight looking uh, uh, anywhere near where where I expected them to be. So I was way off on both picks there. It's a it's a tour of romantic stories, your Rockadel, and there's only one more that needs to happen. It's the Cav. That'll that'll be a romantic story. Tony Martin will probably come out and win the time trial now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's, yeah. Tony Martin's hit the deck already once. Um, that's that's right. And there are two stages now. I think that leads into these next two stages. I think I I was I, I spent a bit of time with Cav uh, when. Um, being involved with BMC and and when it was Quebec Dimension Data moving to BMC Bikes, I spent some time with him and I saw a few things that um didn't 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 indicate well and then it was controversial they didn't take Cav to the tour how could you not take a four time tour tour winner but but then he's gone to Quick Step he's transformed as a rider he's won some races he's going to have a stronger team around him but I think um. Cavs' best opportunities are going to come in the next two days, but of course we're all uh, cheering for someone else because we've all got our favourite Aussie sprinter to cheer for. I think. Correct. Will you actually get to the tour this year, Kiddo, in person? Um, yeah, normally, um, yeah, with all these closures and everything, having my first trip for a long time, I, I think we're going to Paris. Normally, that's that's what the plan is. Of the last uh, eighteen events or something, I've been booked to do uh, about 
17 of them have been cancelled, uh, one of which was meant to be in Girona last week. Um, <laughs> I'm here at home, I was home last week, rather than in Girona as planned. Um, hopefully the, 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 tour goes, goes, uh, the tour trip goes ahead. It'd be nice to be there, but um, I've, I've only had one vaccination, so I'll be being cautious and wear, washing my hands and all those things on, on the same time. But normally I'll be in Paris, yes. I'm interested in your thoughts on, say, like you talked about, Matthews was so good on stage one. Um, Alaphilippe was obviously exceptional on stage one. Um, Matthew had a had a bad run in. He wasn't in great position in, into the into the opening stage, but then was dominant on the second stage. Is he just that much better, or like, <coughs> how did how did that dynamic shift of um, performance? Do you think? Yeah, I, I look at it in a couple of aspects. Um... If we if we look at the three riders, where uh, Underpool, Michael Matthews, and Alaphilippe, well, all three of them are a one day race, big one day race winners. Alaphilippe is a guy who can do, who's shown he can do GC at the at the tour by holding the yellow jersey. I'd say he's more a one day ride, a one day, one day rider who can do GC rather than a GC rider, but um, but. The first opening stage, I, I look at someone like Matthews and I think as a one-day, right, you went in there, you saw your opportunity and you absolutely gave it everything. But that's the one-day race mentality. You 110%, everything you've got, you've put it out on the line. As a GC rider, though, you're sitting, you're taking your time, you're putting in 99% because tomorrow you've got to do it again, 99%, 99%. 95% whatever it is you just you're always holding back just a little bit whereas as a one-day rider yeah you, you have this different have to have this different mentality just turn yourself inside out and put everything out on the line so I wonder was that was Michael Matthews or on the other side Vanderpool um Alaphilippe was really bad positioned as well as was Vanderpool leading into the bottom of the uh, on the first day Alaphilippe came back he made up a lot of space and then uh Drace Devinens took him up and from then he, he Sort of, I suppose he saw a bit of opportunity. Probably had a bit of momentum because he was moving up, moving a bit quicker. Well, I'll just keep it, and go with it for whatever reason. Um, was it a training thing? Is um, Vanderpool getting needing to get going, and one day of racing brings him into his best, or was he just this, it's his first Tour de France, right? Because to go to the Tour, it's I've not raced to Flanders, I've not raced to Paris-Roubaix, but going to the Tour, it's really something else. So well, was he just taking a time to get used to that? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I have to say on the other side too, we're speaking about these riders who are winning, Pog and Roglic, second and third in on the second day. These are guys for the these – are, these are not pure GC riders. They've both got a liage to their name, but, um, but they're also they're, – they're really sharp and ready. I've always, um, every time I've been able to talk to a cyclist, I've asked this question, Cadell, because I'm, uh, from a football point of view, we're always trying to get selfish people to go selfless. Like football has always been a team sport and there's this ever line, Neil Danaher talks about it now, the selfish v selfless people. And we obviously want to be a team full of selfless uh, players and I and I see it in cycling. I see it sometimes. Some teams don't get it right a lot of the time, but um, you see it in cycling. And I'm sure when you were a domestique early on in your career, I'm pretty sure you rode for Jan Ulrich at some point. There's there's times where you do have to be selfless. Is is there a way that either you in 2011 reward George Hincapi in front of everyone for the role he played, and that'll encourage players to uh, riders to be more selfless? Like how 
How do they reward the domestiques behind closed doors to make them keep tipping in and keep being that lead domestique? Uh, yeah, I, I like the way you refer to that self, selfish versus selfless. And and because in cycling, you sort of, but you have to actually switch between the two because your team deliver you to the front. But on, if I give an example of the stage to Galibier in the 2011 tour, I was all on my own then. So I had to be selfish, just do it. Yeah. Do it for me. I was doing it for my teammates, of course, because what they'd done to get me to that point. But uh, yeah, there you're, you're, all, you're all on your own then. Um, and that's where I think in cycling, we have so much to learn from a team like a sport like AFL or probably soccer or something as well. But at a certain point, you're completely on your own. <laughs> Whereas I don't think you, I don't think you, your your moment, your moments on your own in 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 AFL are. I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> you have your penalties and things. Very rarely. You, 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 have, you have those moments, but it's not an individual time trial for an hour where your entire three weeks GC counts or something yeah. like that where it's you know, your moments in cycling of, 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 of doing having to deliver completely on your own are, are far greater. Um, just going through to the um, having been a, a rider in the past, my, my way of being a team leader was I learned from yeah, working from others. Um, never... I would never say to a, a rider, I learned this from um, I, I, my first year at uh, full-time on the road, I rode at Mappe alongside Bettini and Oscar Frey. And, um, and Oscar would never ask you to ride on the front. He would never say anything. Oscar, are you okay? Is everything? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oscar, you're still here. Oh, we'll close the gap. Do you want to do the sprint? No, 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 no. We'll go and close the gap. We'll do this because I think he's going to sprint. But he would never ask you to do it. But the fact that he didn't ask you to do it, you wanted to do it, you thought you should do it, so you do it and you'd be more committed. And it was the same with uh, Beto, Paolo Bettini. He'd never say, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. He was never the dictator, oh, this, that, that, sort of like. And But I found in my own self, as opposed to when I was at Telecom and, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, and you're told to do this, you're told to do that, okay, I'll do it because I have to and I'll do it. Oh, I'll try and get a bit more out of myself. But... I'd get 100% out of myself, but I wouldn't get 110% out of myself. But for Berto and Oscar and these guys, I, I could find I could, I'd happily give 110% of myself. And so that taught me as a leader to not, I, I'd ask if we can do this, if, if we can, if you can bring me here, I think we can do something. If we can do this, if we can do that, I think we can do something. I, I didn't want to put pressure on myself, but I also didn't want to put pressure on my teammates either. So, um, and then it was sort of up to them to, to, de to deliver and, but then also prove to them that you were worth, worthy to work for and prove them by your results, of course. But then on the other side, I've always tried to be one who looked out for my teammates and, we're thinking Brent Bookwald is still racing here, right? We mentioned before, I was just speaking with him yesterday, the day before. And um, someone who I um, always tried to look out for. So I'd always, like when he gets told off by a get in someone's way or something, someone to start swearing. So I'd go up behind them and give them an absolute mouthful of being a rider who had some, I'd go out and I'd defend them. <laughs> I'd go out and defend them, but he feels good because he's <laughs> have someone and someone who's giving you know, there's this little hierarchy and um, I'm more important writer than you are, you're more important than him, oh, he's more important than me. So that when you're when, when, in the peloton, if you go there and you have the rainbow stripes on your jersey or something and you go and give someone a mouthful so that everyone doesn't say anything, no one, not many people say much against you. But um, but uh, so I would look out for them in that regard and then, of course, um, 
yeah, when I won the tour, I had a reward for all the all the riders and their families and things and um, sort of, but things out, outspoken without out the race and um, and that was sort of to show that I was looking out for them. With that, with that pressure of being the leader, we see. Um, well, I'm going to ask you about the Aussies in a second, but Lucas Hamilton, who's been given his first chance to be GC for the Aussie team, and then he loses time on the first two stages. I'm sure that happened to you at some point. How do you go getting back on the bus knowing that all seven riders were riding for you and you weren't able to get done to a level that you would have wanted to? Yeah, well, going going into the tour and they were talking about Lewis Hamilton, I was really Lucas Hamilton, Lucas Hamilton, <laughs> Lewis Hamilton, who's another guy in another sport, Lucas Hamilton. Um, um, I was thinking... This is a lot of expectations on him. I hope he's got a good guy to shepherd him through this first week, and then there. So that's where I'm looking to some of the some of the Aussie guys. And I think it's, to be honest, it's a, him not losing time is more the responsibility of the other guys than him. Of course, he's got to be there. He's got to get there. But it's there's a couple of rulers on that climb who aren't going to be there in the mountains. This is their chance to give to to G, what's going to be GC for their team and that's that's sort of up to them a bit I think so um yeah this is a, you know I had someone like George Hinkerby as a teammate get me through these things so it's maybe easy for me to say um Mickey Shaw was someone who in my mind is one of the best domestic domestics in the peloton today who because he learned from George Hinkerby but um having the having those guys get through you that's that's sort of that's the there's a there's a couple of guys on 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 bike exchange whose only thing they the best thing they can contribute to the team is to get Lucas through. Um, having said that, I think Lucas did really well on the first day. He lost a little bit of time on the stage to Moody Britain, but he's still good for me. Jack Haig is doing absolutely awesome there. You're too nice. Esteban Chavez should have been waiting for Lucas Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> We we have a very unbiased opinion on Lucas Hamilton here at the Social Club, Kiddell. Okay, all right. Well, I, I, I can guess how and why, but um, no, I I don't I don't know Lucas uh, personally very well. So, but what um, uh, what about so he's at um, like just over a minute down. So it's not it's not catastrophic. It's not like he's um, at a, a Ben O'Connor who crashed severely on the first stage and lost lost a mountain of time. What 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 kind of approach mentally does 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 uh, Lucas take from here on? What does he need to do, or does he need to focus on the GC? Does he fo- need to focus on finding that guy to hitch his wagon to? Does he need to find that George Hincapie? Uh, oh, I think what I would be, what advice I'd be giving to him, and this is maybe something I should have made contact with him before the race. I'm just ticking the classification here because I know uh, being a minute down can sound like a lot, but also if you take out all the riders who aren't going to be there after the first mountain stage. So at 28, 39 to 28 seconds, um, yesterday, do you know? I would be looking, even if you don't have, um, I, don't, I don't know how they are on the road, stuff you don't see on TV is how well the team's looking after and through the flat stages, but I would be looking to uh, looking at the more experienced GC riders, picking a few guys as point of references who have the experience, who know when to save energy, know when to expend energy. And, and so in my, I speak about my period of racing, I had a bit of a, as point of references, say, an Andreas Cloden, 
was quite experienced, but he was really good at hanging back and not expending, expending anything. But if he was at the front, make sure you're at the front because that, he was one of the, but then you had other guys who were way too nervous, always in front too much. And you said, well, they're in front, but they're too nervous. He's, and then Sam Sanchez, when I rode for him at the Vuelta, I was like, come on, get to the front. It's going to split. Come on. He's like the, the most laid back of all the GC guys who's probably made a podium at the Grand Tour. Um, so you have these sort of points of reference and I would be using those and the, t- the big teams, of course, looking when they're moving where they are as points of reference and just keeping an eye on those. And it's quite, you can, it looks like an absolute mess, the Peloton, but there's, there's a bit of methodology here when you when you start to look at it in this, this respect and and then you see someone being lazy one day they lose time and the next day they're nervous as hell because their director's in their ear at them yeah stay in front stay in front and they're all nervous and they're right in the front too much and you also got to take that into the to the equation but that's what I'd be looking at at uh, in terms of uh, Lucas's performance but then also looking at him at, at one sixteen okay Solicrado Bello is ahead of him he's clearly not going to be. Um, I don't know even, I can't even pronounce this Astana rider's name, so I don't know who he is, so I respect. Um, he's not going to be there, but then, okay, Nibali, Fuchslang, Garen Thomas, of course, Carapaz. Well, like, it, within within 45 seconds, he's got the guy who's Ineos's best guy to win the tour <laughs> and their second best guy. You know, he's right He's right there with them. If we, if we take out <clears throat> 26 seconds, Uran, 26 seconds, Chavez, 26 seconds, Quintana. These are all guys who have podiumed and may podium in this tour still. Um, he's still in the great position. <clears throat> 26 seconds, Jack Haig. Um, oh, Wilco Kendleman, underrated rider, I think. 24 seconds, and then it's 14, 13. He's so a minute three off Pogacar. Yep. Still, it's still, it's still right in there, but... Um, Having lost the Tour de France in 2007 by 23 seconds, I could say, well, it's all over. But at the same time, it's um, there's 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 he's for a first tour, he's sitting sitting really really well. Do you get royalties for every time Wood Van Aert, Van der Poel, or Tom Pidcock win a race because you were the first mountain bike cycling cross rider? <laughs> No, but do you know how much insult and criticism I took for being a mountain biker coming to the road? <laughs> now it's now it's the on trend cool cool thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I did it, it was like, oh, who are you? That's not a sport. What's that mountain bike thing? <laughs> it's funny. The ones, the ones when I when I came to the road, it was bizarre. The, this is also just the change in mentality that um, when I came to the road, oh, mountain bike, you don't know what you're doing, and this and that. And also, coming speaking about the selfish self selfless selfish as a mountain bike it's a very individual sport you have to be quite selfish you're in a team but maybe maybe your teammates your best your biggest competitor to win the world cup or something as as it was with me with christoph south in the last years of my career anyway <laughs> another podcast um the um the you have to have, make this change in mentality switching to the team but then when i came across to the road the few road riders who'd done a mountain bike race they i did a mountain bike race oh it's hard. <laughs> the ones who've done a mountain bike race all understood that it was really hard. But it's I always looked at it as mountain biking, cyclocross, and like track was for the road for riders like Jay Sweet, Robin McHugh, and Stuart O'Grady were inroads to the top level of the Tour de France. Jay Sweet didn't make the tour, but anyway, cyclocross, BMX, uh, mountain bike, uh, a great um, 
pathways into the sport and whether you end up going to the road or you stay in mountain bike, that doesn't matter. But also I'm here to promote. My, my thing is to promote cycling and health and well-being and whether they're playing footy or whether whether young young people are taking up cycling for me. It's, as long as people are healthy and well, that's um, probably in the end I'm happy. But, um, of course, cycling is, 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 is my sport. And um, uh, coming from mountain bike, coming to the road, I... I I, I feel for the I feel for the guys who come from the road, and I certainly feel very proud when they're seeing uh, Van Earth and um, Van der Poel uh, duking it out in the Cyclocross World Cups, and then they're at Flanders or yeah. Rupay or something. It's that's nice to nice to see. What was the when you when you signed that first road contract? Did, was the team like, all right, you're a road rider now, no mountain bike, no nothing else? My my pathway came through. I part of, I, I raced with the Volvo Canada mountain bike team, and part of the thing going there was I had the opportunity to race with the Seiko team, which is why I actually did a few races and stagiered with Seiko because it was Seiko Canada connection. And I think Canada's plan for was was me to continue doing um, road and mountain bike with doing both. And then uh, this is, I was still under 23 when I was doing this. So I was racing under 23. I did the stagiaire with the pros, which was when Yuzo and Cipollini and so on were yelling at me for riding on the pass, riding riding on the right in the feed zone, passing on the right in the feed zone. And um, and then uh, in 2000, I, I through injury and things, I didn't I didn't do the road racing that I normally did with the under 23 national team. Um, and uh, it was the Olympics in Sydney so of course I was quite concentrated towards that and then afterwards oh let's see what happens and I wasn't under 23 anymore so at that point I was um sort of wondering well, what's going to go on here and then um 2001 I did as Canada wished I was racing road and mountain bike and I just I had 110 120 hours in the airplane 40,000 k's on my car in Europe uh, 30,000 k's on my car in Australia going back and forth and I was just like I was exhausted anyway the whole period through this, I was. It was the night before the World Championships in Lisbon, two thousand one, the Pro Worlds. Uh, Mape came to me and said, um, "Would you like to come to us and develop as a Grand Tour rider?" And I was like, "Hang on a second. Here's the biggest time in cycling, the biggest team in cycling, asking me if I want to have a second career in sport." I was having a few issues with the mountain bike team and things internally, and um, all of a sudden, this is like, oh, this is a breath of fresh air. And at uh, 23, 20, 2001, 24 years old, it was almost like, I've got a chance to have a second career in sport. It was, it was a dream come true that I could have one career as a professional in sport. Now I can have two. And that's when, um, yeah, I went to the road and I was like, okay, my mountain bike goes in the garage, <laughs> it stays there, and it's still sitting there now. I'm waiting for Manchester United just to come knocking. Um, maybe, <laughs> maybe goalkeeper Cadell, I could do something. <laughs> well, uh, couldn't you switch to basketball? Reading oh, through your history, yeah, potentially the height in basketball. Um, Alex, I know you've got probably a few more questions, so I'm going to get my last one out. Just to um, uh, now, my biggest fan. I know you had, uh, had said you're a listener of the podcast. I'm not sure if you've worked out who my biggest uh, cycling fan is. I'm a lover of your former teammate who's just retired this week in TJ Van Garden. Um, and now, unfortunately, never got to the what he was expected to be. Did you think he was going to be a GC contender? Did you think he was going to win a, a, a Tour de France by the time you left and packed up at BMC? He surprised me. Okay. So, we, you know, what you see on the outside of TV, is where, as opposed to being on a team with someone, seeing them under the moments of pressure and, you know, 
as I'm sure you know, you well know, Max. Um, we see, we see, we see, it. we see a sports a sports person's true character come out when they're under real pressure, don't we? Um, I've seen, I've seen all aspects of TJ. So um, <laughs> he he really surprised me with his performance in uh, was it 2014, 2015? He was sitting in third in the third week of the tour, 2014, 2015. Yeah. And, um, and 2015, and um, three days before the getting to Paris or something, riding the stage, he stopped, got in the car and went home. He didn't say goodbye to anyone. He didn't. But speaking to, like, Mickey Shaw and these guys who rode with TJ but also rode with me, they're like, oh, we've been working asses off two and a half weeks and he's got in the car and went home. He didn't even say goodbye. <laughs> it's like that the perform until that until that moment, that performance surprised me. But he he always um he was always good when he was the second guy and he could come out, okay. <laughs> into the result, but to have the, he could do the, the physical side, he had it, but the pressure and the expectation, he, he couldn't handle it. That, that in my mind was what was going to hold him back. And his years following on from that sort of disappointed me a bit, to be honest. That's exactly the answer I wanted. Thank you. <laughs> do you head off, Max? No, no, no. I'm just expecting you to, to wind up with some hard-hitting ones to finish. <laughs> I'm pleased Kid, last I remember last year we talked about you. You um, you were close with with the rog. So go. We've talked about the pog a little bit. Let's go. Let's go to the rog. Have you got any intel for us on um his training camp? He looks like um in super condition. Like we touched on, has just been going head to head with hit the rog and the pog. Just always there thereabouts. And Jack Hag not far behind. But those two look exceptional. Have you got any intel for us on how the rog I is coming? I haven't. I I just occasionally you know. I, I, um, I was speaking regularly with the Rog, um, or Rogler, they call him. What, what, do, what do you call him? Uh, oh, Primoz. Yeah. <laughs> when I write to, I write to Primox, and when I talk about him, I call him Rogler because that's the name yeah. they call him in Italy. But, um, and I was having a fair bit of communications with him and so on. But um, when, honestly, when I was watched that too and I, I watched him and his performance, you know, I watched that time trial. I felt like I was losing the Tour de France. I so I felt so. I, I really. I, I was. I don't know how to describe it, but I felt like I'd lost the Tour de France. I, I was like, I was going to win it, and I, I lost it. I was. I I didn't speak for him for a long time, and things, and I didn't know what to say. And the, you finally, you finally oh, worked so, out how Andy Schleck was feeling this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andy got given another one later. So okay. uh, anyway, <laughs> but um. But having having been in that position a couple of times before myself, oh, you're going to win the tour, you're going to win the tour. Oh, you fell short. Oh, you're a loser. Um, I was second twice in the tour in that sort of situation. But anyway, um, I, so, so I haven't had much communication with him, but I'm not one. I've sort of also become number one. In the meantime, he becomes number one in the world. He's winning Liège. He's winning the Vuelta. And so I, I, every now and then I said, oh, watching from a distance, hope everything's going well. And, you know, how's your little boy going? And, um, but uh, I just see him in a fantastic position this year. Um, I see him very solid, another Volta win, a little bit more experience. The tour experience from last year, he's, um, he's not going to make that same mistake again. I wouldn't say made many errors, but 
or if if any errors were you had a pocket car that came out and grew wings on the on the on the on the very day he needed to have wings to turn things around but um but uh, I just see uh, I see Primoz very solid. He's uh, had that long period without racing. I think you spoke about it in your podcast the other day, which um, I think I was going back, just going back into my memory bank. Could be wrong here, but the last rider to do that program was Nara Quintana, who um, who uh, did, a, did had a similar approach, raced into the Ardennes Classics, went in case of, went went away to altitude training camps and so on, and then came back and, and did a great tour. What impresses me with uh, Primoz is one, he has a team that's stronger, even more experienced than than last year. Uh, he's had this period out of racing, and he's right there getting bonus seconds in the first two days. Fantastic! Uh, as long as he's not hasn't come in too sharp, which is which is um, I don't know. I don't know these first first week how important the first week's becoming. <laughs> I don't know if that exists in coming in too good as, to the start of the tour. I don't know if that exists anymore. But whether that costs him in the third week or time will tell. Um, and um, um, beyond that, I just I see I see uh, he's in a perfect position. And um, actually, someone just sent him a message or something. I was like, just from the outside, you look like you're absolutely in the best best position ever to to have the best tour your best tour ever this year would be my uh, my words to him if I were to speak with him now. But no, I've just been following him from a distance, and he spent a lot of um, time in uh, Tinia uh, in the altitude camp. I think he sort of made it a bit his home away from home. So I suspect he knows all those climbs and all the downhills as well. And that's um, that'll be interesting to watch when we get into that area of France. There's nothing wrong with a one-time tour winner, Cadell. But if you if you had Robert Hessink, Vinegard, Set Course, and Kruiswick as domestiques for you, do you reckon you could have won four or five? <laughs> Oh, I'd like to think I could have done a bit more, but sometimes <laughs> the way they go, you, you, you'd, you'd sometimes find yourself on the radio in a moment of feeling not so good. Uh, he's up a bit, guys. <laughs> oh, no, they have. Oh, it's, oh, it's, it's, cause it's nice that there's a um, real solid American rider out there being in the front and uh, real, yeah, I, I like him. I don't know him at all, but he looks, uh, looks from the outside, looks real solid class rider. Speaking of, strong teams Ineos on the, on the other side of the table too has an extremely strong lineup have you ever been in that situation Cadell where they've they've come in with just a team approach there's a, there's lots of leaders they're starting to kind of find a hierarchy but there's no clear leader um oh, I, I suppose um I had one moment in uh, 2012 talking about TJ Van Garderen where he was ahead of me on GC <laughs> it was sort of strange there was this from one day to the next, I was team. I was team leader. I was team. Oh, no, no, you're do what, do whatever you can. TJ's team leader, and it was a bit of a came from the management, and for me, it came as a bit of a spit in the face, to be honest. But um, but um, uh, I've, I've I've been in that that position, and also when I was not having a good tour, I think it was in two thousand nine. I had um, being on a Belgian team when a Belgian rider, a Belgian rider on a Belgian team coming fifth is better than an Australian rider, a Belgian team going for the win in terms of sponsorship value or so um when um uh, Vanderpants um sorry I've gone gone blank for the name um Vanderbrook um Brook means pants I think um in Dutch. <laughs> Brook is like a shorts or braces or something isn't it um 
uh, he, Van, Van der Broek was, was moving to a good position on GC and going for the KOM uh, jersey. Um, yeah, there was all, all of a sudden, oh, it used to be about you, now it's not anymore. I was, I was, I suppose I was in a little bit of that and also back when I was telecom, oh, I hope I go to the tour uh, or it comes here, forget about it. <laughs> you, you, you might get a start at the Vuelta, um, 2004. Yeah, yeah. Have I been a team that's that's so strong like that? No, and that's where I say that we spoke about before. Um, Brailsford's just been. What I find really interesting about David Brailsford is he's as a is a physiologist, but he's also a sports psychologist, which is a bit of a rare combination. And then he's bought this, and I think also Max, you might find this interesting, where he's bought he's he's bought this yeah self, selfishness, selfless to a team. And to be able to manage that's just been extraordinary. I think to have guys so good, Richie, who podiumed at the tour last year, to be there committed riding on the start of the, just to be able to motivate someone and convince them to do that day in, day out at the stage race, just to be able to do that is, I find, extraordinary. And and chapeau to Browser, that to me is um, one of the most uh, extraordinary things he's, he's, he's done as a man, team manager, and, you know, discounting the things that money can buy. If only Bobby Stark would have a Brailsford. Right? If only Bobby Stark would have a Brailsford and then Valer, Valverde, Mass and Lopez won't all be going to the same stage, Alex. <laughs> good, good observation. Good observation. In the past, they were all with Nara Quintana and but a Spanish sponsor when you have Valverde and, yeah, Anzu and the, oh, that whole thing. Yeah. Uh, uh. Good I, only, I only see them from the outside. Yes, it's good for Netflix's production team. Cadell, <laughs> did um, did did uh, did you happen to catch Max's top thirty-four on GC that he top, that he top. that he rolled out? He's been known for some lengthy predictions on uh, where people are gonna gonna <laughs> oh, no. end up. I'm not expecting a reel off a top thirty-four, but it would be good to get, good to get a top three to five on um on top three or top five on who you oh. think's gonna. Win well, this Tour yes, de France. Yesterday, I was doing that with SBS uh, talking about Garrett Thomas, thinking it was going to be a great tour, but looking at him 41 seconds down, <clears throat> well, <laughs> just in front of Nibali and Fuchslang, um, that's that's not looking quite as good as it was. Carapaz being being Ineos's first guy, um, now going in, of course, what I I thought uh, I uh, going into the tour, I had Carapaz and Thomas up there, and I was like. Going into the tour, I thought, you know, something are they going to fill the podium here now? But now I'm more, um, two Slovenians on the podium, and um, well, I think Primoz, like I said, he's the best one. He's I'll put Primoz first, Pog second, and third, um, Carapaz for, 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 for one, two, three on the podium, and then right. Nipping on the heels, I think we might see. Um, oh, it'd be great to see an Iran. I'll give uh, top six or eight. Um, Garrett Thomas, top six or eight again. Jacob Fulksling, I don't think he's ever cracked the eight. So you know, I put him in the eight to ten range. Um, Lucas, okay. uh, Jack, Jack, Jack will be there in that mix there. I think realistically, I hope, I hope better, but um, I think he'll be in that mix there. And so I'm missing sort of. Four, five, and six, aren't I? Um, yeah, you know, Quintana. It'd be nice. To, it'd be nice to have a French guy in that in that period there. But um, David Gadu. Gadu, you. Gadu. 
<laughs> so far, so good. Uh, not many uphill finishes, but not no long time trials this year. Um, they speak about two 30K time trials. was um, listening to the uh, Swiss commentary yesterday about um, the, the Mour de Bretagne was once used for, the, for a time trial stage of the tour many years ago. Many years ago, when the time trials were a bit longer, they had a time trial there. It was 139 individual time trial, 139 kilometers. <laughs> two 30k yeah. time trials sounds like a warm up. Well, Lopez would have lost the tour by two hours. He <laughs> <laughs> would have been eliminated outside the time limit. <laughs> Funny, years ago when I, I, I was moving house, I was cleaning up this stuff out of someone's house who I was moving into, and. I found like a 1953 Tour de France handout. I've got it here somewhere. You look through like the stage distances. It's ridiculous. I'll have to dig it out. But the shorter stage is like 280Ks or something. <laughs> Crazy distances. An actual Tour of France. Oh, yeah. It was like the like when you go to the race, you when you come to my race, we give you a start list and a little rider favourites bio and so on. This was like the pamphlet that you get or comes in the newspaper or something. And um, yeah, I'll have to get out here. It's got a, don't want to archive that away. I hope I'll put it somewhere safe. But um, I'll dig it out. But what amazed me looking through it was just how um, the shorter stage yeah, was 200 plus kilometres. Um, so so that many years ago when the bikes weren't as good, the, the roads weren't nearly as good. And um, but but um, sorry, going back to the to the time trials, some of these climber types they don't have as many mountaintop finishes, but they don't have as many flat time trial kilometres to. Like you referred to Lopez, <laughs> might have quite been uh, OTC was it out, <laughs> outside of the time cut <laughs> on a time trial. He <laughs> might still be might still be in, in in with the fight. So so um so the, the time the time trials are not not going to be so eliminating for the climbers. And there's a few opportunities for those risk takers like on the descents. Like um, oh, I'm thinking we'll see we'll see attacks on that. Might, might make some time gains by Rogler and, and even Nibali, who's not not hasn't shown to be a, a favourite for the win, but he'll certainly be taking back some time on the downhills as well. Yeah. Any final questions, Max? No, that's about it. I've 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 hit my hard hitting one. Eddie Cadell, you're sitting here ten years post. 2011, you're five, six years retired. Are you, are, you, are you happy? I know you're based in Switzerland. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm over here because I have a 10-year-old son who lives just over the border in Italy. Is my reason why I'm not. Um, I'm in a different time zone to to, to you, you guys. But uh, yeah, thanks very much, Max. Um, I have to say I'm delighted. It's nice to be speaking about the tour. I uh, so I have a bit of a Tour de France themed office because most of the, my little Zoom conferences and things, uh, um, a year of lockdown, my 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 office is set up for for these these discussions and and those of the Tour de France. But now, all being said, yes, I have to say I'm I'm very happy. Thanks, Max. I've got two great little boys who occupy most of my. Uh, time these days which has just just been great because being a being a dad and being having all this time with, with those guys has been fantastic and oh to be here discussing with a not not just an AFL player but um no the 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 George Hinkerby of AFL today because looking <laughs> through your there seemed to be this funny funny um <clears throat> wave of strength and success when you were playing so we're looking through your through your history of um <clears throat> coming through the ranks and um no a bit to be able to discuss that the the sport 
today where it's going, the interest that it draws from someone like from yourself, from another sport, Max, to to the broader public and um, where the sport is today, I have to say. I'm sort of proud of what I did 10 years ago, happy what I did. I had my chance, gave it everything, and so I, I, I stepped away from the professional racing without um, without many many regrets. And um, now I'm just happy to enjoy the ride, look at it, and um, like all of us, watch the race with a great deal of enthusiasm and um, go ahead go ahead with with life and um you know of course still love riding but uh no one's expecting me to do these seven watts per kilogram efforts up every climb i do now so it's uh, <laughs> i don't force them upon myself to do those those efforts anymore either i've got one last question for you cadell we've got a as of uh three or four weeks ago a brand new partner of the tac on board as um a new sponsor of the podcast as part of their, the road belongs to us all campaign that we all, that we all, the all play our part. We all do our bit to make a safe environment out there. You've ridden maybe everywhere. You've ticked off. I imagine most countries in the world. What is there one thing that you can think of that makes, makes a safe road environment an ingredient that, that makes a, um, a place so fruitful for cyclists and car drivers and pedestrians and, and all of the above. Well, of course, the cyclists, the cyclists in we would say are lights, but um, I'll say as the, the the car driver, the passenger on a bus, the <laughs> respect. Uh, I remember my Victoria Vic Roads driver handbook. To drive on the roads is a privilege, not a right. You always got to remember that, I think. And as road users, whether we're a truck driver, a car driver, a pedestrian, a cyclist, <laughs> it's our it's privilege to use the public roads. We have to respect everyone on those. If you, if you don't want to respect them, go and hire a helicopter or stay at home. Another, another uh, I know that's a good one to finish on, Fidel, but another one of our podcast friends, Cohen Court. he actually got hit by a car going for a training ride and had all four fingers amputated, yeah. Yeah, he normally was going to the tour and he hasn't got any fingers. He's got a thumb and a forefinger. It's like, oh, you can still ride. Yeah, but gear changes. That's crazy. Getting through that messy peloton, the, the washing machine there, through the first week in those Britain roads so with, with two fingers. Yeah. I don't know. So if we go and look, uh, look back at what um, Mick Doohan did with his career after he had some well, lost some fingers, it was pretty impressive. Maybe he has to look to Mick Doohan for some inspiration. Nasty, nasty. Well, Cadell, thank you very much for your time. It's very generous generous of you to come on the podcast. You're always a very special guest to have. So we thank you for your time. Well, thanks. No, thanks very much for having. Great to speak with you guys. Great to see you again, Max. All the best for, for you and the success going forward. Thank you, Cadell. How, how many more weeks away are we from? Uh, we've got eight more games. We're sitting on top of the ladder currently. Eight more <laughs> this is how far away I am from the other other side other side of the world. All the best with that, and hopefully, we'll before those eight more games. Maybe 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 we should speak before we get to before I leave to go to Paris. Might have to get you some inspiration. Get up in the footy club and give us some inspiration going into the finals. Well, <laughs> I, I, on, on the team unity thing, you I'm there. I'm, I'd be coming to learn from you guys, but uh, on the um, probably probably on the toughing it out and not giving up side of things, I'm, I'm, I might be able to offer some insights. Beautiful. Thanks, mate. No, no. Thank you. All the best, Max. Thanks for having me along, Alex. Thanks for having me, guys. And we'll, we'll speak again soon. Stay safe, Always everyone. Always a pleasure. Thanks.